where to start is exactly this, to identify a tool you can use to motivate the change you wish to see, and then to become proficient, if not excellent at that, yet using that tool, and then to actually put the tool to practice. And, um, and so in this instance, we could use negotiation as being an example of a tool you can use to motivate change in your organization or in your environment. Welcome to Corporate for the Culture, a podcast where we dismantle the career system to, to provide the next generation of Black corporate leaders with tools and a community to build the career they deserve. We are about to have a very important conversation today about negotiations, and not just negotiations, but negotiating while Black, and how that can be an exhausting, but yet everyday burden specifically for Black professionals. I'm really excited to have Trey on our podcast today. Trey is a current associate at McKenzie, but he has an extensive background, everyday practice around negotiations. So Trey, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I am very excited for our conversation today. <laughs> me too, Trey. Um, so every episode, we like to start with the dimensions of identity because Black people are not mon monolithic. So would love to learn a little bit more about your dimensions of identity. My name is Trey and I was born and raised in Richmond, Virginia. Um, I am a Black male, a Black cisgendered male. I also identify as a member of the LGBTQ community. And I would say these two intersecting identities, being Black and being gay, have been very key to my life, not just my career, I think from a very young age, being in a position where, you know, you're always being messaged that your who you are is less than, whether it's because you're Black or because you identify as LGBTQ, hold that while not always expressing yourself fully because you don't feel always safe to do so. Um, uh, gave me a lot of insight into the idea that, well, you know, I'm pretty sure there are many other people who experience this sort of shunting of themselves and their personalities um, for a variety of reasons across a variety of dimensions. And it really encouraged me to become more curious about people and the secret and silent ways that they suffer, to want to become interested in their life experiences and the things that were important to them, and to really dispense with my own assumptions about who people were, to not try to categorize people based on my beliefs or stereotypes and to really give them the opportunity to share and demonstrate through their actions and consistent action who they were at all points in life. Um, so I think that mm -hmm. that for me, this sort of coming from this space as a black man and as a, as a gay man really gave me the encouragement to be open and to not close myself off from learning and to always understand that people, when they need help most, they might not always be expressing it in ways that I can receive it or identify it. So get curious and figure out what you can do. Trey, we have so much in common. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I feel like the world would be such a better place if it came from this mentality of just what you said, which I think is so important around putting our beliefs aside to really just meet people where they are and understand what shapes them understand their experiences, because I think most, especially historically marginalized groups um, and those with you know, a variety of different disabilities suffer internally every day. And I try to solve for for my work and what we try to bring to the table with these conversations. And so right off the bat, just thank you for 
you know, the positions you've taken in life and the vulnerability of sharing who you are and then also showing, you know, the courage that you have to even have that self-awareness and bring that forth in this conversation. Really looking forward to this episode. So we, we do also like to start with a definition. And so before we jump into the conversation, Trey, you could tell me if, if you like this definition or not after I read it, but negotiations, I found this in the article and I'll post it uh, for our listeners on the blog and on our website, but it describes negotiations as a tool for asking for what you want and deserve, bending norms to break open new paths and shaping new ways of working. It's not, negotiations is not about playing hardball. It's about framing asks as opportunities for negotiations and getting creative with options. I love, yeah. You, you love it? Oh, perfect. Oh, yeah. I love that, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so tell, tell us a little bit about how you describe the importance of negotiations. Yeah, I think that a lot of people from my experience may not recognize they negotiate in their everyday lives and especially in ways that they might not even think about being negotiation. Yeah, and, and I, I remember how you had talked about this. I don't, it, I mean, it seemed simple, but it just resonated with me when you, when you talked about how negotiations is about strengthening relationships, because mm-hmm. I, I feel like we, to your point, don't think about how it is part of our everyday, day-to-day way of navigating and getting the things that we deserve and we want, um, we need. But then on top of that, when we think about career and and why we have this podcast to help our mid-managers reach these senior level uh, positions, it's a key to really becoming successful in your career. It comes up in multiple different ways, but what's interesting about it, Trey, is like negotiations when it comes to career, I feel like then moves to more this formality and this privilege. Right. Yeah. I feel like, you know, it starts when you from when you enter a company and you interview to salary negotiations to kind of how you progress within an organization. And that feels really scary. It feels unknown. And I and, you know, a little bit heartbreaking because what I had read in this particular article is for most black professionals they look at negotiations as a privilege because when they try to express their wants and desires, there are so many biases that come along with it that they actually end up getting reprimanded for trying to speak up. You know, they're seen as, you know, being aggressive or this like mentality of that black people face. I know I, you know, I heard this multiple times, you know, that go along to get along culture, right? Where we're first generations, we're in these rooms for the first time. And so we don't want to necessarily push against the mold because that's not the expectation that our white majority counterparts have for us. They really have this notion of a lot of them, unfortunately, like you're lucky to be in this room. So why are you asking for more? You know, so negotiation becomes very heavy and scary. My observations and my own experience is it is very easy oftentimes for those of us who have different marginalized identities to go into any space and to assume a sort of power deficit that we may have as it relates to others in that environment. 
And I think a lot of that, right, is due to a lot of the experiences we've had in the past, a lot of the messaging we have around what it means to be this or that, and how you should show up, how you should not show up. Um, but I do think that there is at least acknowledgement now that it cannot be a single view or a single vision or a single person or identity that can drive impact for organizations, for society that we absolutely do need to have as many voices in the room to really see the problem from multiple perspectives and to push the work forward. That being said is that maybe some organizations right, are not signaling or empowering all of its people in the same way that others are in order to get to a point where everyone feels safe and also I would say um, supported and given the skills needed to express themselves um, in a way that maybe a certain organization is used to taking in information. Um, and it does, I think it, it tugs at that the, there's, there's a tension I think in that is that, well, there shouldn't have to be like a sort of quote unquote script or a type of vocabulary that I, as a person in my organization should abide by in order to be heard and understood. Um, and I shouldn't have to sublimate my own identity in order to be heard or understood because who I am is very much you know, um, encapsulated and contained in everything that I do or say. So it would be, it, 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 I would be remiss to even try to shrink a part of myself in order to get my point across. And that there is also some organizations are structured in a way where in order to motivate change, get things done, there are certain maybe procedures or steps, even like vocabulary and words that this organization may use in order to get those things accomplished. Now, the potential uh, issue with that may be that these companies or organizations um, uh, may not, again, be, be empowering people in the same way um, uh, across the board. And when it comes to that, I think that that's where the problem solving can come into bear because, you know, one can look at it and say, well, here, I'm a single person's organization, you know, like, and I recognize my organization may not be moving or empowering me or others like me in a way to help us change this organization. So, but what, what can I as a single person do in the face of all of that? And I think that's where I can suspect a lot of the frustration comes from is that I want these things to be done and I don't feel supported in getting it done. Um, or I don't feel like they're giving me the skills and the tools I need to get it done. And so where do I move first? What is my first step? towards trying to change things and negotiate the outcomes that I wish to see. And I think that that is maybe a point that could be uh, of interest to explore further. Yeah, I, I, I like where you're going there in terms of, there's a lot of dynamics and honoring this moment that we're in and hoping and our hope for change in the future that with the now statistics and the facts that show diverse representation in a room matter because it helps the bottom line, that then the voices that represent that diversity would need to be heard. However, we still know in the constructs of where we are today out of the Fortune 500 and plus organizations in the last year, there's a lot of them that try to just check a box and aren't really actually ready for that change. And there, there are so many ways to kind of dissect what you were talking about because there's a company in the institution itself that you're trying to navigate, but then it's also on an individual level and their own bias and their own beliefs 
and their expectations of you as a, as in for our, you know, our arena, historically marginalized black professionals and our expectations and their bias on that dimension. But then as an individual ourselves, if we think about all of those different layers from the person that's directly in front of us, like our manager or director or the person that we're interviewing or recruiter versus the company, like where do you start when you think about the dreams that you wanna have? Exactly. Um, and so maybe we can jump into, and then we can kind of circle back on the mindset around it all. But to your point, like, is what is the kind of framework when you think about negotiations and, and in this framework, I'm sure it helps you think about, you know, that first step, that second step, how to work off of it, right? But uh, tell us a little bit about any type of frameworks that one could use when thinking about negotiations. Absolutely. So when looking at what you just said, for example, where to start? If we settle that as being a good sort of launching pad for our conversation, is that I think where to start is exactly this, to identify a tool you can use to motivate the change you wish to see, and then to become proficient, if not excellent at that, yet using that tool, and then to actually put the tool to practice. And, um, and so in this instance, we could use negotiation as being an example of a tool you can use to motivate change in your organization or in your environment. And that within negotiation, I mean, first across different schools, companies, regions, cultures, all of that, there are different ways to negotiate, right? Because negotiation also responds a lot of ways to whatever is, um, whatever sort of these sort of inputs from the culture around you actually are. But for this conversation, we can just focus it on negotiating here in America, um, in North America for um, companies, organizations, and, and individuals. And then we can look at what structure, uh, at least from my own experience, has seemed to bear out and have been useful for me. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I would say, uh, so a little bit background uh, for those who are listening. Um, I guess my first formal engagement with negotiation was when I was a master's student at Harvard University. I was studying education policy and management. And I was, I took a negotiation workshop course that was taught by a number of professors, many of whom were from the Harvard Law School um, and that they were here at the education school. To, to teach this course of negotiation. It was wonderful, loved it. Uh, the next semester, they put out an all call for, for students to join them on the teaching team um, for a full course engagement on negotiation, similar to one, one, the one that I went through. And, uh, and I applied, interviewed, and was fortunately uh, able to join the team. And so both as a student and as a member of the teaching team, I was then able to get more in contact with these principles or rather elements. And so I can uh, first go into a quick overview of what we call the seven elements of effective negotiations. And this you can find actually in, let's say like there's a book called Getting to Yes uh, that is written by the, the founders of Harvard's program of negotiation, which is actually one of, the, one of the most used books in the space. You can also do a, a simple Google search too to kind of have a more in-depth dive on these seven elements. But as they are, the seven elements are one, relationship, two, communication, three, interests, four, options, five, alternatives, six, legitimacy, seven, commitment, and then of course, just in general, keeping in mind what type of conclusion is it that you want. And I can also pause there and then go a bit more in depth 
on each of those seven elements. I am pulling it up on my Google as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, no, those, those make sense. Let's talk a little bit more about those seven. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one is relationship. And you brought it up earlier. And it's great that you did because I view negotiation essentially as being a tool to strengthen your relationship with either the other person, other company, other party, whoever is sitting with you in the negotiation. Uh, and I use the word with intentionally rather than saying across from you, because I think across sort of sets up in your mind this idea that there's a diameter separating you from that person or that party. But I like to think of it as with, because with is we are both included in this process of solving a problem. Because negotiation at its heart is about solving a problem, coming together to figure out how we can reach a solution that is great for us both. So that first piece is relationship. And what we often told our students in the workshop is that when it comes to this relationship piece, is you want to be hard on the problem, but soft on the relationship. Because of course, you know, this person, this party sitting across, sitting with you, let's see it comes up there, sitting, <laughs> sitting with you, <laughs> um, this person sitting with you, they may be a colleague, they may be a partner, a spouse, a friend, or they may be someone that you really enjoy, or just in general, they are a human being. And if there is no reason to introduce adversity, uh, if there is no foundation that needs it at, at, at all. Um, and so I think it's important to really lead first with relationship. Um, let's focus on building that trust. Let's focus on ensuring that we see each other as full individuals and that we respect whatever it is that each of us is bringing to the solution space. So, and, and I could see that one and I don't want to derail it so we can come back to this, but yeah. I can also see that one being tough because that particular one, I guess negotiations in general is in the control of both parties, mm -hmm. right? So hard on the problem, soft on the relationship. I love when you're just saying, talking about a human, but when we think about black professionals and like the bias that comes along with it, like, and the misunderstanding because of the lack of awareness piece, like how do you strengthen that relationship while now it's probably part of all of these seven right Trey yeah. but just thinking about that as well because a lot of times by the articles that I was reading it's before you even open your mouth about what you want and the problem that you're trying to solve so that you can build that trust familiarity comfort with the other individual there's all of these other wires that, that are going off in their mind and so they're from the get-go kind of coming at two different interest points or two different points of understanding. But I'm sure that's baked through these seven. It is. And, and there are going to be circumstances where you are negotiating, you know, across power lines, um, whether that is because like due to race, or maybe you're also negotiating with someone who is a part of your race and ethnicity, and there's still a power differential, differential there. Um, and so I think that What's key is to always have an eye towards how power is functioning in the relationship, what your position in that dynamic actually may be, and also not to forsake the power that you also bring to the conversation. And to get tactical, I mean, I would say that it's, of course, it varies from person to person, right? Um, and, and so I would say, like, if someone gave me a scenario, I could maybe help and coach them 
onto how to think about their particular scenario. Uh, but to say here is a blanket recommendation on how to navigate this, this power space, um, there might not necessarily be a blanket recommendation. But one thing I will say, and this does come in actually in the next step, is this idea of communicating. This is this idea of, of, of getting curious. And I, so I was, I'll pause here for a second, and this is all related. Um, I was a teacher uh, before I came into the business world, and I spent 10 years as an educator. And one of the most important lessons that I learned at the start of my teaching career was you have to model the behaviors you wish to see in your students. And I think that is always the most important thing to bear in mind. And my father and my parent, my mother told me, told me this as well, is that I have zero control over what other people do. However, I do have control over what it is that I do and understanding that what I do may have influence on what other people do. And so looking at this is that if I want to see certain actions, certain things and certain behaviors from the person I'm negotiating with or solving a problem with, I'm going to model at all times those expectations. If it is active listening, I'm going to reflect, I'm going to reflect back to you what it is that you were saying at all times. If it is getting curious, I'm going to get curious about you. And also I might even just flat out surface that at the beginning saying that, hey, in this conversation, I want to ensure we're having a culture of respect, curiosity, that we are probing, that we are acknowledging what's being said by each other, that we are truly moving forward aligned on what the content of the conversation actually is, that we're all on the same page. And so I think that's also very key is that you will always, all of us will always have very limited control beyond our own personal selves, but we can also use the control that we have over ourselves to model for the world around us, how we hope it will react and respond and behave. Well said, and I, I love that um, that sentiment of setting the stage from the beginning because, mm -hmm. like they always they teach us that in business school, right? When we are um, working on our numerous amount of group projects, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. before you even get into it, you go around the room and say, like, how do you want this to work? What mm -hmm. works best for you? What do I even need to know about you personally, uh, professionally? what is your goal, right? So that I understand what, to your point, is influencing the conversation and the need and the desire in that moment. So I really like that about setting that stage. And, and one of the most important pieces of advice and that too, is this idea of setting the stage is that you have to be purposive. And typically in a negotiation, the first mover, the most purposive person is the one who ultimately is the one who helps set the tone of how the conversation will go. So if you do walk into it at the beginning and you model those behaviors, you model that listening, that grace, that, that openness to really work together and figure this thing out, that that already is doing so much of the work that you don't have to do throughout the course of what ensues. So what about these other seven? You talked about yep. communication, relationships, any other one that... Um... I know we have all of them, but any other ones that you think are important to focus on? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that they all are important. I can, I can also spend, you know, shift my time on each one based on how you feel, uh, how we feel there might be more energy and interest around. But on that, right, so we have relationship and communication. So we are setting the stage for how this whole interaction is going to go. And then the third bucket here, this third element 
is interest. So what do people really want? My, here's my thinking with this. I think that within this idea of interest and what people really want, it's very easy for us, I believe, to become myopic. We look at ourselves and we're very aware of things that we want and we're very much caught up in our own world and in our own problems. And so we're just, we just get kind of really bogged down in it. And that can sometimes uh, discourage us becoming curious about what other people are going through because it is very easy to relate to what we're going through, but it might be a little more challenging to see what is the other party, what might be on their mind. Heck, maybe they had a, even like a traffic accident or they spilled their coffee and maybe they're showing up and they're a bit red faced and irritated and that might have nothing to do with us. And yet we might receive that, hey, this is all about me. It might not be. So I would say that the first thing in my suggestion is to dispense with assumptions. And that may be hard for some folks to do because you're gonna automatically calculate some sort of assumption at the onset, but to dispense with assumptions as best you can and come in with a blank slate and pretend that you know very little about this person and what they may want and then get curious about it and begin to collectively identify and articulate the interests, concerns, and needs of all relevant parties in the negotiation. And it's interesting too, I mean, this one common theme I've heard across the three that you just mentioned around relationships, communication, and interest is all this element of curiosity mm -hmm. and curiosity for the other person. It seems yes. to be the underpin so far across these three, but yes, uh, makes sense. Please continue. Absolutely. I mean, curiosity, I mean, as a candidly and as a, as a quick aside, uh, even for me has been a major governing principle of my life. And I, I mentioned it, of course, at the beginning of our conversation when discussing my dimensions and my personality and identity, but, uh, but even relatively recently over the past 10 years, you know, um, in my own sort of like spirituality and, and, and faith seeking, that there's this quote from St. Augustine. Um, and whether you're faithful or not, you know, or have a religion or not, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's all great. But this quote for me really um, drives home a lot of the idea and, and a, a really good governing principle for me. And he talks about it in the context of faith, but I think it applies to everything. Um, what Augustine says in his book on the Trinity um, is that faith is the inclination to seek to find the truth rather than the presumption that unknown things are known, meaning essentially that you don't know anything. And we oftentimes become so attached to our presumptions about the world and about other people. And we set these presumptions up as idols in the mind and they're fixed, they can't be moved, they can't be changed. And because they're fixed, these, these presumptions and assumptions, we don't allow ourselves to truly see other people or to truly see situations because we become so attached to our own ideas about those things. Um, and so the idea here is to get curious, to explore, to be inclined to seek to find the truth, whatever it may be. And so I think like that for me, you see it right baked into the DNA of this framework even is that we don't know anything and to lead from a place of ignorance, to lead from a place of assumptions is only setting yourself up for failure in all endeavors and especially here. And so if you can get curious, you can begin to unlock and unpack all those things you may think you don't know and actually discover then guess what? You are set up for immense success in the conversation that follows. So when you think about, and it, and it all makes sense. So where would we go from here, right? When, when we talk about interest and, and curiosity, what's a natural kind of next mindset or, or kind of trait 
with for for um, negotiations? Yeah. So when you have your interest, and okay, I know what the other party wants, and the other party knows what it is that I want, and we are open, we are honest about these things. We've established enough trust in the relationship where we can feel that what is being said and communicated is truth. Then from there, you can begin moving to this fourth element, which is options. And options is what are the possible agreements or bits of an agreement? And so options here are options. They are not positions, meaning options are more or less the, the fruit of a brainstorm. You're not committed to any of these things. So you're saying, okay, other party, you are interested in A, B, and C. I'm interested in D, E, and F. With these interests on the board, what are some potential outcomes, some potential options that we can begin to put together? We're not committed to them. We're just now, we're co-creating, right? We can co-create and see what these options are and see if any of these options on the board are at all close to our ZOPA or the zone of possible agreement, right? So like if you're on the left side, I'm on the right side, what's in the middle here? That's our ZOPA and our options are somewhere within this space. And so when you get to that point, that's great because even looking at it from a pure group psychology point of view, that co-creation is actually one of the best ways to build and strengthen a relationship. And so like this space with options and co-creating options from your interests that you've identified is a critical piece in the negotiation that begins to build towards what may be an acceptable outcome for both parties or for all parties. And I'm gonna have us go through the, the last couple and then I would love to for us to then take a step back and kind of make it real and think about some scenarios that show up in the workplace. Absolutely. Um, and then from options, you begin to come to alternatives. And alternatives is very important, especially important for people who are negotiating across power lines. And this may be where it becomes a bit more uh, um, focused in on things that are interesting to us as uh, you know, black folks and, and you know, people of color from all different dimensions is that what will we do if we do not agree? That every single party entering a negotiation must have what we call a BATNA, B-A-T-N-A. And a BATNA stands for best alternative to the negotiated agreement. And you typically see this actually surface and people who are negotiating for a new job coming up. So let's say I get a new, I get employed by a new employer and they say, hey, Trey, here's your salary is X thousand dollars a year. And I'm like, oh, actually my current employer is offering a raise. That's a bit beyond that salary point that you're offering me. Can we negotiate that out? And so your BATNA in that circumstance is actually your current employer because your current mm -hmm. employer has given you a raise that might actually be a better alternative to whatever your potential new employer might be giving you. So you always have to come into a negotiation with saying to yourself, well, what would I do if this negotiation and this conversation does not produce the outcome that I want from this conversation? And what out of what I could do, what is the best alternative? What is the best alternative to the negotiated agreement uh, if this negotiation here does not go the way I want? And so always having that in mind, whatever it may be, is so key because it also allows you to anchor yourself inside your own power. It allows you to anchor yourself in this idea that, you know, my life goes on, you know, despite this conversation working out one way or the other, that I am a full person. I have other options. The world is open to me, whether, I, whether here or other places. And so that's a key ingredient for really navigating the negotiation successfully. So, and, and that's, that's an interesting one. Like, I thank you for making that real because... Um, 
with the alternatives, the the bigger element that I'm also hearing there is preparation, right? All of this is preparation, but I do think more that more than less, especially with Black professionals, when we have this timidness around negotiations and really asking for what we want, we don't get the facts mm -hmm. that we need to support our argument when we're walking into these conversations. So the the BATNA that you that you refer to is like, oh yeah, that makes sense, right? I'm moving from one company to another. I know that I'm going to get a raise in my past company. I know that raise is going to be X amount. So why would I go less than that if money is the most important thing to me, right? Because yep. there's, there's multiple factors. And so I do want to just kind of pause and highlight that because I do think that though it's a tool, it's a muscle that we all need to build. And going back to what you said earlier, once you have the tool, it's all about practicing that tool. The biggest thing outside of being yourself, being able to communicate, be curious and ask questions is also knowing exactly what kind of that good, better, best scenario looks like. And in this case with the framework, the BATNA, that best alternative to say, okay, I may not get what I want, but I need to be flexible. And in being flexible, this is the result, the best alternative, but then how do I get to that best alternative is you have to prep for that conversation. You have to have your facts, you have to have your evidence to be able to help you round out towards that best alternative. Yes. And see, you're see, you're the pro because you've you've already preempted the next the next element, which is legitimacy. <laughs> and, and like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. See? See? Like uh no you know you uh, the, 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 I didn't try guys. I didn't try. <laughs> yeah, no, no. You're, you're see the expert over here that's that's you um the uh so legitimacy is exactly that it's looking at what criteria will i use to persuade each of us that we are not being ripped off that we are getting the best outcome um and that's exactly it so when it comes to criteria it's like what are the what reality what universe of facts are we going to introduce into this negotiation that we are both going to agree on and you will find actually that the criteria, this actually has to be at the beginning of the conversation that you have, that you have to agree that, and in many ways, it's kind of your first negotiation. It's, it's like a negotiation within a negotiation of like, which criteria are we going to introduce and, and agree on uh, in this conversation as being some sort of orientation towards truth. And so when you look at criteria, for example, I mean, you typically want to have external criteria and objective standards as a basis to legitimize your preferred options uh, and as a shield against unreasonable proposals from the other side. So if you are, again, negotiating a salary, a very, very easy sort of source for criteria in the conversation is, well, I have a full list of what the market says that this job, uh, based on my level of experience, uh, should be priced at. And so already, right, if it's like from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, like that's a pretty good set of criteria. And it's, it's kind of hard to push against that because it's literally what everyone is more or less being uh, compensated with in the market total. And so that's that's so key. It's like what sort of um, metrics are we going to agree can help inform a conversation, what's gonna be our North Star or North Stars towards truth? Um, what types of data am I going to acknowledge as being valid? And then how are we gonna use that to begin to evaluate the different outcomes, different options that we are putting on the table? 
so much great. So was that all seven before I? That was six, and then seven. Oh, okay. Is... Give me the last one. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then, and then seven is just commitment, right? So what commitment should I seek or make? Um, and you want to get commitments at the end, not the beginning. And you want to also think about, well, if I am making this commitment, um, what might it take for us to really implement this commitment and follow through on this agreement? And begin to almost, you know, somebody's also negotiate a plan for that as well, once you get that sort of major commitment off the bat. And so, yes, yeah, so you have commitment follows uh, that sense of legitimacy. And you use that legitimacy, that criteria to also confirm that your commitments are indeed fair uh, based on what you have coming out of that. And actually on that uh, topic of fairness, I feel like that's the first time it's come up in the conversation. I reminds me of this, this really great conversation I had with, uh, with a CEO um, and on Wall Street, one of the major Wall Street banks. And, and she was, I mean, she's phenomenal. She is one of my favorite people in the business community. I mean, aspiring, amazing mentor uh, in, in, in mind. Um, and I asked her this question for our, our intern class. And I asked her, you know, like, what are the key things that you keep in mind when it comes time to negotiate, uh, especially if you're negotiating your salary? And she was speaking too, from her own lens as a woman. And, and again, navigating this sort of power dynamic and just all the things we were talking about here. And she said that she begins each conversation pretty much the same way, that she never walks into a room and says, I will do this job for X amount of money. She never says that. What she says is that I hope that you and I can have this conversation. And at the end of the conversation, we can both walk away agreeing that it, whatever happened, was fair. And I think that that is actually a really great orientation towards that because it really allows you to center your own interests at the heart of it, but also be mindful of what is operating in the space at the same time. So I, I think that's a really, uh, for me, that, that, was, that was a really great unlock of how to think about it even further. Yeah. And it, it links back to what you were saying is, you know, through all of this, you never know I mean, this is like the compassionate side of me, but you just never know what people are going through in a day or, or in their life or where they're coming in from and what's going to kind of affect their ability to show up in their room. So anytime that you could develop psychological safety prior mm -hmm. to important conversations is really important. Yep. So I feel just listening to that myself, if someone had come up to me and said, hey, I'm actually here to be fair, meaning we're both going to feel good, hopefully, about this outcome. And that's the, the perspective that I'm starting this with. I mm -hmm. feel like it'll, it breaks down some walls, right? I mean, that, that's just my reaction. So yep. I, I really do like that framing. Um, so thank you for that. Absolutely. So, I mean, in general, thank you for this crash course <laughs> of, of these seven elements. And I, I, I do think we also brought in some good storytelling I, and like wrapping this up. I think you had said this really well when you and I had our introductory call around the shield and the sword yeah. and how black professionals, um, and I don't wanna, you know, I'm gonna have you expand on this cause I don't want to put words in your mouth but you had talked about this coming out of the fairness element is this power deficit, right? And yeah. so when you think about black professionals and the privilege that many of us see and seeing it as a white dominated tool to negotiate, what are the things that you feel like is most important for black professionals to understand 
and, and, and of course, shift their mindset when it comes to negotiations? I would say that I could speak to, to my experience and, and, and then see if that is, uh, hopefully that, that, that may be helpful and informative for, for those who may have similarities uh, with, with mine. Um, I think what was always important for me was to always be mindful of whatever limiting beliefs that I had um, about myself. And those limiting beliefs, I mean, a lot of them were generated by myself, just from my own insecurities as, as a person. And a lot of them too were handed to me by the world. And, and, and I, I held onto them from childhood through adulthood. And then as I began to realize what I was actually holding, and identifying what I was actually holding, I was able to drop them one by one, but it's still a process. And I think when coming into any organization or any conversation, is to be very mindful of what do I believe about myself that is actually hindering any sort of mindset or behavior that is going to generate the result or the outcome of the world that I wish to see. Um, and that may be, you know, oh, people don't want to hear me talk, uh, or I don't know enough about this topic to actually share anything, you know, um, or a like there hasn't been anyone that looks like me in this organization, so therefore they're not going to really take me as being a serious person or a critical leader. And trying to parse out like, are those limiting beliefs? Are they founded in reality? And oftentimes they are, you know, sometimes they are, right? Um, or are they in some ways like Chimera that I am just ascribing to, um, that if I were to dispense with them, I actually can move very purposefully and, and, and just drive the sort of change I wish to see. And so I think that that's like, that's a key thing. Um, and like, like for me, I mean, if you, if you have time, I'll give you like a quick little uh, kind of yeah. story where that kind of came into play. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. um, so like when I went to China, so I lived in China for four years. I was a teacher, uh, then I was a school director, then I was in the corporate side doing franchising for our company throughout China. And uh, I was the first African-American employee that our company had hired, had ever hired in China. Um, and actually before I arrived to China, they even had, I guess, like a little, uh, a little conversation around like, hey, well, you know, Trey's also, you know, he's, he's light skinned. So maybe they'll think differently about him. And I think this came from the company's, you know, uh, assumptions that local families would be less willing to send their kids to a school where there was a black teacher. And, um, and so I was apprised of, of, of all this um, before I came over to China and you know, they were like, hey, if you're not comfortable, we understand, you know, cause like, this is just kind of a, we're also navigating this, you know, like this, this sort of idea in the culture as well. Um, and I also thought to myself, you know, well, you know, as many of us, uh, I'm sure, you know, I'm used to being either the first or the only, right? <laughs> and and uh, I think a lot of us right. have been the only black person or the only this in a room. And, and you know, and one of the sort of, you know, um, uh, ironic benefits of that is that as you get older, it kind of becomes less of a novelty and becomes more of the norm. And so therefore, I think maybe emotionally, you're a bit different, differently positioned to, 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 to be in that space than maybe others who haven't really had that experience are. And, um, and so I was like, this is, yeah, I'm, I'm actually okay with that. And, and, and I also saw it too as, as an opportunity to, if this belief did actually bear out to be true within the community, that this could be a chance to build bridges where maybe there are perceived gaps of understanding or, or perceived differences. And um, so I went to China and I was, you know, as they promised, the, the first and only black uh, person in the company, um, you know, and, uh, 
And instantly the reception and the sense I got was that that belief was unfounded, um, that the families, the kids especially, were deeply loving and, 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 and wonderful. And, and, and there were, of course, you know, some parents who did express their misgivings to, to our, to our uh, uh, staff and our directors. I'll give you one example. I had one student named Tony, uh, one of my one-year-olds, and uh, his mother, Nicole, she spoke perfect English, and Nicole went to our director and she says to our director, she says, hey, I don't want Tony in Trey's class because you know, Tony's, because Trey's black and Tony's afraid of black people. And our director was like, well, Tony is one years old and Tony doesn't really know what he's afraid of yet. And so we're going to keep Tony in Trey's class. So Tony can actually just learn how, what it is like to be with other people. Um, and, uh, and fast forward three years, Tony is now four years old and is going to a kindergarten outside of our school. And his mother, Nicole, goes to the principal of that school. And Nicole says to that principal, Hi, I want to request that Tony has a black teacher, please, because Tony is most comfortable with black people. And so, and so, like, I mean, that to me demonstrated that okay, a person can start in one place, but they don't always have to be in that place forever. They can also change and just change with experience. And so, there was within this same time frame uh, when I had become the uh, VP of our business development uh, unit at the company, uh, I was working with our franchise partners. And this is where, again, this idea of what power do you now have? And what, what experiences do you have? What criteria do you have? What are the interests that are in the room? Um, so we had a school in Wuhan, uh, Wuhan, China. And, and I was there often. I was there every weekend for multiple months and helping them set up their school and teaching classes and doing demos and events. And we're just having a great time. Family's having a great time. We're just having all these amazing enrollment numbers. It's great. Uh, and then I'm also hiring teachers at the same time for this Wuhan school. And as I'm hiring teachers, I keep referring, you know, black teachers to the owner of that school. And she keeps saying, no, 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 no. She's like, actually, can I, can I get like a blonde teacher? You can't get a, like, you know, like a blue eyed mm -hmm. teacher, all these things. I'm like, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I, so I fly to Wuhan uh, and I sit down with her and we had this conversation and she's like, I don't want to hire a black teacher because again, it's kind of like old hat reason, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because like our families will react negatively to having a black teacher in the school and I won't have as many enrollments as we could have if we had a white teacher was the assumption there. Um, and so, and this begins the negotiation. And so fortunately the relationship piece was already very much established because uh, mm -hmm. we had worked together for a very long time. Uh, the communication piece was also there. I mean, granted it was kind of, you know, by force because she's speaking Chinese and I don't speak Chinese that well. So we're having a, a, a translator the entire time. So we have to make sure we understand what each other is saying. Um, but then we get to this idea of, of, of interest. And the interest here for her was, hey, I want to have enrollments and I want to, you know, make sure that my families more and more are coming to the school and kids are happy, blah, 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 blah. And I also want to have teachers uh, at the school. And my interest is this, it's like, yes, I want the same thing. And also our company's values, one of those values is diversity. And it's not just a word on a wall. Like if you have a value, it has to be intentionally lived every single day through consistent action. And so I said this to her and I also said this too, and this is me leveraging criteria, right? Like here, here is an objective benchmark here is that look at your enrollment numbers over the past few months when I have been here and 
families are having a great time. We are breaking records. We're doing better than any school in the country right now. And that's also correlated with me being here and you cannot separate me from my black skin. <laughs> like right. I am right. a full on black man in this school, in this, like in these classes and parents see that and they are just as happy, very like just drilled and asking just all sorts of great questions about the program in America. And so like this belief that black people would result in fewer enrollments is actually a bit unfounded. And especially when you look at the, at the credentials that these black teachers that I have been hiring and proposing to you compared to other groups, these are very deeply qualified people who have been studying mm -hmm. this and who have all these licenses and all this thing too. So to forego amazing talent off an unfounded belief around blackness that's just going to hurt you even further in your school because if you get low quality teachers regardless of any race in the school, that's gonna really hurt you know, parents wanting to come here in the first place. So you have these amazing teachers who are also black who could be amazing contributions to this environment. And so long story short, we went back and forth in our conversation. Uh, and then within about a month, she had hired two new teachers and they were both African-American, uh, a, a man and a woman. And, um, and by the time I left China, so we actually had this come up in a number of conversations with, with our uh, franchise partners who had similar uh, issues and I had talks with each of them. And by the time I left China, about half of our uh, teaching staff from America, our foreign teaching staff were African-Americans and two had been promoted to being directors of schools. It's such an amazing story at different levels. I mean, uh, I think, you know, in, in reality too, which is interesting about I think one of the first points that you made around understanding the culture, mm -hmm. one thing that if, if like our listeners have never been to China, you know, a homogenous society and understanding the history there and mm -hmm. how they think about black people and they communicate, it's there, you know, I was thinking about how you're like, the person actually told you, I don't want to hire black people, right? Like, <laughs> like no one would ever say that in the United States. So it's right. like, I mean, usually traditionally they don't. And so like, yeah that honesty that they had in the beginning allowed you to really understand what the fears were, what was driving those fears. And, and then your own evidence about like the success that you had was you were able to model, like you said mm -hmm. before, around modeling those behaviors of what a black teacher would look like in those schools. And then what that would result would be to create the change that you want to see. And then that was shown in the impact that you had. So I think that's such a, a great story. And, and one thing that I also admire is, um, I would say to your first point around what black people should understand is these, these beliefs, these limited beliefs that they have in themselves. And it seems like you took a chance, mm -hmm. you know, to your point, like, what do I believe in myself? And is that true? That's a really hard one. You know, yeah. that takes a lot of time to unpack um, to figure out what risks you want to take and if it's yep. a reward. So there's just there's just so much there within your story. Um, so thank you for for sharing that, and also for breaking beliefs in China, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I, you know, I think one of the the bigger parts that I took away from this that I you know that gives me hope in my my work as a, a DNI practitioner and consultant and an advocate for change is that I do believe we can shift people's beliefs because a lot of them are unwarranted, right? And they, if you ask the whys and you, you're able to show through examples, you know, we can change the way that, we can change 
people to different mindsets. So I agree. it's great that you've had that evidence of experience. Well, Trey, we have had a robust conversation. There's a, there's a lot of great things here. I think a lot to unpack even for our listeners. So again, I just thank you for your knowledge, your time in the space. Um, but before we wrap up, I just want to make sure that I'm honoring kind of your time. And if there's any other comments, uh, feedback that you would love to give our Black professional listeners out there, especially when it comes to thriving in corporate America, no pressure, just wanted to make sure that I, I wrap up with that last question. Yeah, there is an idea that I'm very fascinated by. Uh, and it is more or less just how the world is created, meaning how everything that transpires in history and throughout time, how these things come to be. And these things come to be just by virtue of human activity and human actions. And some people do things and some people don't do things and some people do things for certain reasons and don't do things for other reasons. And there's just so much baked into that. But what I have found is this idea of being purposive, of just putting a foot down one in front of the other and moving and trying to push the world wherever you can, even just being inclined to do that, to engage in that particular type of activity and that forward moving motion can be so critical and just getting things done in any space you're, you're in. And in some spaces, it may be more challenging to do so than in others. But I think for me, that is just looking at your career, looking at your life is finding or even building and cultivating and creating those spaces where you can move in that kind of way where you can begin to have the ideas in your head and all these wonderful creative things be reified and exist here in reality, where it can begin to change and shape the world in a way where the future can be much better than the past and where it can be more expansive, more inclusive, and there's more opportunity for joy for all people. And for those of us who especially have not had opportunities to experience it in the same ways throughout our lives, our histories. And so I think that's a key thing for me is, this idea behind what an individual person's will can motivate and shake loose here in reality. I think that's a mic drop, Trey. I don't, I don't think I need to respond to that. That was, <laughs> that's a mic drop moment. Well, <laughs> well, thank you again so much for your time. I, I, I mean, hopefully we can continue the conversation maybe bring you on again. I, I know yeah. our listeners, are going to get a lot from this. Um, and we'll, I'll link kind of the books and the seven elements in the bio of this episode, but uh, to our listeners, feel free to provide feedback, any other questions or interest areas within the topic. And Trey, just thank you for the time again. Absolutely, thank you so much. I had a, a wonderful afternoon in our conversation. <laughs>